Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, we'll be continuing a deep dive into the suspicious death of Taylor Gruwell in Dallas, Texas. And I say we because Heather Ashley from Big Mad True Crime is here. Let's get right to it. Hello. First of all, I want to thank you for all your help on Taylor's case. Honestly, you've done all the work. I am just going over what you've already found and having my mind blown. In case y'all don't know this, Heather and I met on Jessica Van Zant Dietzel's case, which she covered extensively. I happen to be the victim advocate and work very closely with Jessica's family. And from the moment we met, the rest is history. Heather and Big Mad Media have been so instrumental in helping me to get my podcast off the ground. I couldn't have done it without them. I am so excited and honored to be working both Taylor and Jessica's case with not only one of my very close friends, but also someone I respect so much for her dedication and all of the cases she covers. If you're new here and not familiar with Taylor's case, check out the last two episodes and meet us right back here. So Heather, we've been over Taylor's case file together and you've reviewed the autopsy report, surveillance videos, crime scene photos, witness statements, and all the information that we have access to. And when I called you that night and asked your opinion, I'm pretty sure I heard more F-bombs and what the fucks come out of your mouth than I'd ever heard before. And that's saying a lot based on some of our previous conversations about cases and life in general. I mean, I've heard less coming out of a room full of sailors. And I'll confess, it may or may not have been on both ends. What was it that got you so big mad about Taylor's case and what sticks out in your mind most when it comes to all the evidence we've reviewed? So honestly, the first thing that catches my attention are the marks on her upper chest and around her neck. You see what looks like it could be um, kind of like fingernail gouges. And you see these three scratch marks on her chest on the left side, and they're going towards her shoulder. That's not a normal direction that you would scratch yourself. You also see the three scratch marks again going underneath her armpit. So I think about in what situation would this happen? And all I can think of is that somebody came up from behind her and and was basically trying to pick her up. She was fighting back and got loose, and thus we have these scratch marks. I think another important thing to mention is that we've seen the surveillance footage of her falling. You don't see the fall itself, but you see she's not there one moment and she's there the next, and you never see her move. Also knowing the injuries to her wrists and her arms in general... She never, after falling, scratched herself. So at some point before this, and these look like very fresh wounds, she got these scratches. So if she didn't do it to herself and she didn't do it after she fell, when did it happen and what was going on? Right. And we also know that there was nothing in between her and the fall. 
So she didn't hit anything on the way down. It was just straight down from the parking garage to where she landed. So last week, I covered all of Taylor Gruwell's injuries according to the autopsy report. According to the autopsy report, Taylor Gruwell died as a result of blunt force injuries due to a fall. And it's completely evident when it comes to her cause of death, that's exactly what happened. But as I told you last week, there were several injuries that are not consistent with her fall from the fifth floor. So when and where are these injuries sustained? We don't see any injuries to Taylor on the surveillance video before getting in the car with Cody Marley and driving to the top of the parking garage at 11 p.m. And we know that Cody drove her up there and then returned without her. Taylor's body impacted the ground at 11.06 p.m., We know this because of her watch, and we can double confirm that with the surveillance video Heather just mentioned. We also know that Cody left the top floor of that parking garage just moments after 11.06 p.m. We can confirm that he leaves the fifth floor of the parking garage where Taylor has just went over the edge and drives down to the third floor, and an exchange with two Hispanic males is seen on surveillance. According to those police reports and Marley's own statements, He was buying drugs. We also know from that surveillance video that the two Hispanic males hop in their vehicle and drive up to the fifth floor, and then Cody Marley jumps in his black Accord and also drives again to the fifth floor of the parking garage. There is no 911 call placed at that time. And then the three exit the apartment complex, the two Hispanic males in one vehicle and Cody Marley in the other. So when exactly did Taylor sustain the injuries that are not consistent with a 50-foot fall from a parking garage? Seems it's pretty likely they were sustained somewhere between 11 p.m. and 11.06. And those injuries? There are several. Let's break them down. There are injuries to the top side of Taylor's hand. When Taylor went over the wall, she tried to break her fall with her hands and landed with her palms down. It's evident by the direction in which the bones in her arms and wrists broke. It's also evident by the bruising to both of her palms. So why are these abrasions on the top of her left hand? And these particular abrasions, they're quite distinctive. Red-purple contusions are over the knuckles with red-dried abrasions over the second, third, and fifth knuckles, measuring up to one-fourth of an inch. There's also that superficial scratch mark down the side of Taylor's palm. I touched last week on the fact that I consulted with several different experts in the field and they came to the same conclusion, that those wounds appeared more likely than not to be defensive wounds. Heather, what do you make of the injuries to the top of Taylor's left hand? I think the bottom line here is that she fell very clearly with her arms down. When you look at the bottom of her hands, there's gravel, there are scrape marks, the whole palm is bruised, and the injuries to her arms add up that, you know, she tried to brace herself. What this doesn't account for are the bruises to her knuckles. Why would there be bruises to individual knuckles and chunks taken out of them if she fell palms down? We see the impact that doing this had to her entire arm. So there's an abrasion on almost kind of the outside of her hand. And if you zoom into where her pinky bends at the knuckle, you can see that it's like she dragged it outward, if that makes any sense. And we know that she didn't move once she hit the concrete. And if she did, she wasn't putting enough force down on the ground 
even if she could have moved once she hit the ground to create these abrasions. So again, what was happening before she fell for her to get scratch marks to her chest, underneath her armpit, around the, the bottom part of her neck, and now the backs of her hands? If anybody showed me this picture and I knew nothing about the case, my first question would be to ask if they were in a fight of some kind. So you brought up a good point. The injuries to Taylor's hands weren't the only concerning injuries. We noticed something very interesting while going over those crime scene photos concerning Taylor's neck. On last week's episode, I went over a note made by a nurse from Parkland Hospital describing Taylor's neck as displaying redness and bruising. And again, nothing is noted on the autopsy report. However, while going over the crime scene photos, something jumped out to us immediately. There are injuries to Taylor's neck that are evident in those photos. These injuries are consistent with that note from Parkland Hospital. Her neck appears to have bruising and two marks, which appear to be consistent with a fingernail, one on each side of her neck. Once again, these injuries wouldn't be consistent with the way that Taylor's body impacted the ground. Taylor had a large laceration on her forehead. The bruising on her abdomen and both legs is consistent with her body landing face down. Her abdomen and chest made impact with the ground. We know this because of the bruising pattern that matches the driveway of the apartment complex, the surveillance video, and the injury sustained. Her body made contact, arms first as she tried to brace herself, then her stomach and chest followed by her head. So why do we see injuries to her neck? There's another injury that's concerning, the injury to her chin. It seems super out of place for a fall. Like I've said before, you can't hit your chin and your forehead at the same damn time. That large laceration on Taylor's forehead does appear to be consistent with her fall, but the chin, it just doesn't make sense with everything we know. And the fact that there are no injuries to the inside of her mouth and her teeth are in perfect condition. The force from a 50-foot fall and a direct hit on the chin would easily break teeth, and you'd expect wounds to the inside of the mouth and tongue, but we don't see any of that. Heather, what do you think? The chin is one of the things that really stood out to me. When you look at her forehead wound, I think a lot of people automatically assume that a laceration has to come from a cut, but a lot of the times you'll see blunt force trauma result in lacerations, and it's a really clean cut, and it it's consistent with a fall. It's consistent with blunt force trauma. When I saw the laceration to her chin, I had several questions. So in the photos, we can tell that she was intubated. And with that, you can see some of her teeth. You can see some of her lips. And you don't see any damage. You don't see blood. You don't see loose teeth. You don't see missing teeth. Her mouth seems unaffected. But if you fell from a fifth-story parking garage and hit somehow both your chin and your forehead, you would see massive damage to her jaw, her bottom teeth, her upper teeth, probably her tongue, the insides of her mouth, the cheeks. But we don't see any of that. We don't see any report of any of that. And the cut itself is really jagged. It's not this clean cut that you see with a blunt force injury to her forehead. Now let's move on to the next injury, her feet. So there's deep bruising to her feet that appears to be consistent with the fall, but then there are these little superficial wounds, which once again just don't make any sense. 
it's just where the very first layer of skin has been torn. Compared with the other injuries that we know were sustained in the fall, it just doesn't match. Those injuries to her knee as well. I believe that the deep bruising that is seen could absolutely be consistent with the fall, but those superficial scrapes, it just doesn't appear that that particular injury could be related to the fall. What's your take on Taylor's knee? So Taylor's knee is abnormal. You see um, in her in some of her trunk photos, you can see where she does have some abrasions from the fall itself. And, you know, it's consistent with, I keep calling it the tile, but it is kind of cobblestone on the driveway into the apartment complex. And it's, you know, it has a pattern to it, but the abrasion to her knee doesn't have a pattern to it. And it doesn't always match up with the lining of the cobblestone. So it looks more like someone was struggling on their knees, kind of rocking over and over on a rough surface. Which again, all of these injuries make you wonder what happened prior to the fall. So you have the hands, you have the scratches, now you have the knee. And you keep going back to, okay, if she didn't get this after she fell, what happened before she fell? And we know that before she fell, she was on the fifth floor. So what happened on the fifth floor? Right, because I feel like that abrasion to her knee would have been seen had she had it prior to going to the fifth floor. We would have seen that on the surveillance video of her walking with Cody before they drive up to the fifth floor. When you look at a photo that's kind of panned out of her leg and it has the pattern from the cobblestone, you can see where there are abrasions from where she fell where there's bruising from where she fell. And then you see this really, really dark, deep bruising around this abrasion. And what kind of sticks out the most to me is that it's not even at the peak of her knee. So her knee is naturally resting in a semi-bent way. And when you think about a fall, you think of what's going to hit the ground first because that's going to hit the hardest. You would think that it would be the peak of her knee, but... The abrasion is more so on the lower part of her knee and not necessarily the the peak, which I think is interesting. The lower part is where you would put weight if you were on your knees, and that's where the abrasion is. That knee really is so interesting, and it's even more interesting to me when you consider the fact that Cody Marley also has a scrape type abrasion with scabbing on his right knee when he's picked up by Dallas police on September 26. Those scrape abrasions on Taylor's knee look eerily similar to his. And exactly who is Cody Marley? I mean, we know he was the last person to see her alive. We know he didn't place a 911 call for assistance at any point on the night of September 23, 2017. We know he was found passed out in his Honda with a blown tire on September 26 and immediately lawyered up when questioned about the details surrounding Taylor and what happened in that parking garage. He has since sent a written statement through his attorney to investigators on Taylor's case, but again, he refuses to come in and talk. I can also tell you that according to Taylor's father, Marley refuses to unlock his iPhone that is still in possession of the Dallas Police Department. It's the one that was seized on September 26th. I mean, I can think of a few good reasons why. None of them good. I'll also let you in on the fact that people are terrified. They are scared to come forward and talk about Cody Marley and what they know about that night. 
I would make this plea on behalf of Taylor's family. If you have any information about the events surrounding that night, please come forward. If you have any information about the two Hispanic males seen in the surveillance video, please reach out. This family has waited three and a half years. Come forward and speak with an investigator at the Dallas Police Department. You can call 214-671-3650. There are measures that can be taken to protect you. You can also contact Crime Stoppers and remain completely anonymous. Call Texas Crime Stoppers at 1-800-252-TIPS. You can also submit a tip on their website. I'll post a link to my Facebook page. If you do choose to reach out to Crime Stoppers, be sure to reference Dallas Police Department case number 218-587-2017. I completely understand the fear that a situation like this causes. However, we are all more safe if the responsible party or parties are behind bars. Please do the right thing. Taylor and her family deserve the truth. You can also message me on any of my social media accounts. Reach out to Taylor's family or Heather. Send a smoke signal. Whatever means you are comfortable with, just please reach out. We've only scratched the surface on who Cody Marley is and why people may be afraid. There is so much more to uncover. Past behavior can be a good indication of future behavior. And Marley's history with police is extensive and well-documented. Heather, thank you so much for joining me and for all the behind-the-scenes work on this case. I truly appreciate you more than you know. I know between the two of us, we can get the ball rolling in the right direction for Taylor's family. I strongly believe that with any crime, there is no hurdle that you can't get over to solve it. Sometimes it just means going back to the drawing board and coming up with a new plan. I know that police did a lot of work in this in the beginning, and I think that there is a lot of work that can still be done to solve this case. I think it is very solvable, and with the right minds, the right people, the right allies, and the right investigative team, this case can be solved and there can be justice for Taylor. ud af 10 personer har haft hovedpine i løbet af det sidste år. I Ibren lindrer lette til moderate smerter, også hovedpine i op til 8 timer med to tabletter. Ibren er et lægemiddel, der indeholder ibuprofen. Væsentlige bivirkninger af maveblødninger, mavesår, hudledelser og allergiske reaktioner. Læs mere om Ibren på indlægsedlen eller emballagen og kontakt din læge eller apoteket, hvis du er i tvivl om noget.